Uh, I can imagine that most of you have either thought this is, or you've heard someone say something like, why in the world are we spending time in this kind of obscure book of Job in the Old Testament when there's so much of the rest of the Bible that we could be spending our time in? And so I've given a lot of thought to this. I've shared this with you. The reason I'm doing this is I've just been really convicted that this is where the Lord wanted us to go. And so that's been my own personal experience. But one of the things I want us to get out of this is, is this idea, and that is that this study of the book of Job, Job gives us an insight into the human psyche like just about no other place in Scripture does. In other words, it gives us an opportunity to evaluate ourselves over and over and over again. Where am I? Am I doing what the Lord would have me do? And what we're going to see reflected in these three friends is three fundamental ways in which people deal with or react to verbally when it comes to difficult circumstances. What I want to challenge you with is this, is as, we, as I go through here, you should probably see some reflection of yourself in one or all three of these. We've already heard from Eliphaz who was somewhat restrained and diplomatic in his words to Job. I mean, they come across very clear as, in essence, con condemning Job because of the position he's taken uh, in regard to himself and the circumstances that he finds himself in. But you know people that are kind of that way, somewhat restrained, they say things, but when they say things, they're very diplomatic about them in such a way that they, they, they don't tend to offend people so much as if some other person said pretty much the same thing. That's kind of Eliphaz. What we're going to find with Bill that is he is blunt as blunt can be blunt. He sees things as black and white. He calls things as he sees them to be. He doesn't give much ground. He is definitely a reactionary. He hears something, he sees something, and he reacts to it. We're going to get to Zophar in just a couple of weeks. He comes across as very differently. He is a lot more restrained than the other two. Now, if you think very much, you could probably say that just about everybody could be classified in one of those three ways. People who are sometimes somewhat restrained and diplomatic, others that are very blunt, and then others that seem to have no boundaries at all. They're willing to say anything and everything. So join me this morning as we read chapter 8 in the book of Job. This is Bildad, the second of uh, the three friends of Job that is speaking now for the very first time. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, notice here he's responding to what Job has just said. 
How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice? One of those rhetorical questions that we talked about or that are salted and peppered all through this particular book. And rhetorical questions are questions that everyone understands there's an answer to, and everyone knows what the answer is. It's obvious to everyone. Does God pervert justice? What would you say to that? No. Right? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? What would you say to that? No. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginnings... uh, your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, the bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. I want you to notice there's something. He, he's, he's making an appeal there to the ancient writings. So some of the things that they're saying here are based upon what they've been taught, what they've, been, they've learned from people who've gone forth before them. And this is a good example of that. I just want to bring it to your attention. For a choir, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers has searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? No. doesn't say that, but that's what we all know. Can reeds flourish where there is no water? No. While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from this place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Notice here he's also a little bit shorter than Eliphaz was. More to the point, more direct. Some things that are obvious here, number one, is that Bildad obviously agrees with uh, Eliphaz and even Job. Pre-Job, before this event took place, I would imagine that the arguments you hear presented by these guys would have been very much the same kinds of arguments that, uh, that Job would have himself given. But there's a difference between Job and his three friends, and that is this, is that he has learned some lessons. He has, he, has, he has endured something that none of the rest of them have, and in that, it's been a learning process for him. In a sense, it has challenged him in his wrong understanding of things up to that point in his life. 
So what we're looking at here really is through what seem to be drastic measures, but a renewing of Job himself by God through all of this. Because Joe sees holes and pokes holes in their retribution theology that he shared with them up to this point. So this may, may this always be a lesson to us, and that is we need to be careful coming to conclusions uh, about other people, what's going on with them when we have not walked in their shoes and passed judgment on them. Because more than likely, we're going to be very wrong in our conclusions but it's so easy for us as sinners to do that. I mean, how many times do we do things like that? Pass judgment upon other people when we have not walked in the same shoes that they happen to be in. But really what I'm hoping is that we will see ourselves to some degree reflected in at least one of those three people as we study through this book and just keep that in your mind. As we said before, that, uh, that Bildad happens, happens, seems to be one of those kind of blunt people. Whatever goes through his head comes out of his mouth. He doesn't always process things very much before he says things. He's a reactionary. And I would say that there are people in this room that tend to be that way too. In fact, there's some people in this room that when I first got to know them, I would have said that they were very much that way. But now as I've known them for years and I've seen them grow as Christians, they're not the way they used to be. Now let me just say this, that, uh, that we don't always react to things in the same manner every time something comes up. In other words, sometimes we may be a reflection of one of these three, but not the other two. And other times, one of the other ones and not that one. So we need to be careful about building these boxes that we're in, that this describes me and how I am to a T, and there's no other aspect to it. We are very complicated people, every one of us, and we need to be very careful about categorizing ourselves or other people when it comes to just about everything. What I'm saying here is that even though you may not be that way all the time, there are times when you may be very blunt. I've been grieving this week because of some things that I said that needed to be said. Don't get me wrong. If I had to do it all over again, I would still speak out. The problem is this, as I look back on it, I'm still, I still know, no, no doubt about it, you know, matter-of-factly, that what I said needed to be said, but it did not have to be said in the manner in which it was said. Because Keith, at least on occasions, does 
tend to be on the blunt side. You know, one of those people who see some things as black and white, when in fact, they're not always so black and white as you want to make them out to be. I was in a position where I had, to, I had to speak. I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. Don't you dare sit here and keep your mouth shut. You've got to say something. The whole time you're hoping someone else is going to say it. And there was a lot of people in that room. And I said some things that had to be said. But reflecting back on them, I know that they could have come across as very blunt to some people. And because they were blunt, they were hurtful. They were hurtful to some people that I've known for a long time. And I've served with for a long time. So we need to be very careful about saying things in a way that sometimes doesn't build people up, but it tears them down. And that's typically the result you're going to get from people who are blunt, like Bildad is. Blunt people very often come across as uncaring people. Blunt people very often do not necessarily want to hurt other people, but, but sometimes they do. Another thing about Bildad people is they have a very hard time, very often, of admitting when they are wrong. And by the way, very often Bildad people don't see themselves as Bildad Bid, build bad people at all, even though other people do. So you may be sitting there saying this morning, well, I'm not one of those people, and the people around you may be saying, I think I know somebody that is, and they're sitting right beside me. Let me tell you something. You do not know yourself. The picture you have of yourself is very different from what reality is, and that's true for everybody, all of us. The important thing is that you realize that you can have these tendencies and that there's a willingness on your part to do something about it. Very often, blunt people are not helpful to other people in what they say, even if what they say is right. Very often, the manner in which they speak causes other people to sh stop and shut down, shut down listening to what they have to say. There are people that are familiar with them. They're thinking, here it comes again. I'm not going to listen to a word that comes out of this person's mouth. Consequently, Bildad people often find themselves spitting into the wind which is basically one of the things that Bildad accuses Job of doing. He, in essence, accuses Job of being a windbag. 
blowing like the wind, but not really saying anything. In verse 2, he's basically saying to Job, you've said a lot of things, but in essence you have actually said nothing of substance. As we said before, the book of Job is salt and peppered with these rhetorical questions, and we understand what rhetorical questions are. They're, they're questions that we, the people, everybody knows what the answer is to it. There's no mystery to what the answer is. Let me ask you something. Does God pervert justice? What do you think? I hope you're going, no. Let me ask you something. Do you think it's even possible for God to pervert justice? You do? No. What now? Is it possible for God to lie? Is it possible for God to lie? Okay. <laughs> I don't make the connection. Anyway, I think if you think through all of it, all of you would agree with this idea that God never perverts justice and and we should see that reflected so clearly in the gospel, that the gospel itself is all about God's justice and the degree to which God is willing to, to maintain his perfect justice. Now talk about blunt. I mean talk about blunt. I don't see how you could be any more blunt than this to someone that you supposedly care about. Just remember that day that Job lost all of his material wealth, and he also lost his whole entire family except for his wife. A few chapters ago, Job had the worst day possibly other than Jesus Christ that any person has ever had on the face of the earth. He lost everything that was precious to him for, but for one thing, and that was his wife, or two things, his wife and his God. That what Bildad says to him to his face in verse 4 basically is that your children got what they deserved. They died like they did because of what they had done. Now can you imagine being so blunt as that? There, I mean, do you think there's any sense of, of love and care that comes through to Job based upon what this supposed friend is willing to say to him? But see, this is, remember we talked about this retribution theology that is just all through this book. That is a, it's the same thing that, that all three of these guys just continue to verbalize. And that's the idea that every time a person suffers, it suffers, they suffer because they themselves have done something wrong. And we've argued over and over again that that just is simply is not true. And it's not just a New Testament teaching, it is an Old Testament teaching too, that very often the people of God suffer when they do right. Not because they're doing wrong, but because they're doing right. There's a sense in which Job is suffering here. Why? Because he was doing right and the Satan didn't like it. And Jesus is the principal and primary picture of that. 
Jesus never did anything wrong at all to people or to God. Nothing. And compared to Job, the suffering of Jesus goes way beyond. I mean, there's a sense in which for us to understand the magnitude and the essence of the suffering of Christ, we would have to be God himself. And we're not. And we never will be. Unfortunately, I've heard Christians basically say the same thing to people they're trying to witness to. I mean, it's hard to conceive of anyone being so or coming across as so cold-hearted as this. Talk about blunt. How could you be any more blunt? There's a sense in which Bildad echoes some of the advice already given by Eliphaz. In verse 5, he kind of turns to this, and it's basically the idea, and Eliphaz said the same thing, and that is, if you'll just turn to God, if, if you turn to God, then he's going to give you relief. He's going to give you what you want. And the reason that you haven't gotten it is because you haven't turned to God. What I would say to you is this, is this is something that's very common in the church today, this same very message. Some people hear it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In the form of what is called the prosperity doctrine. If you live a good life, if you do the right things, and you ask God, God will give you every good thing that you possibly can imagine, and even more. The reason you don't have these things is because you don't have enough faith to believe that he will do that. This is a teaching that has gotten us chokehold on a good bit of the church of Jesus Christ in our generation. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Goes by the name of prosperity doctrine. There are churches around, very big churches have been founded on this one single principle. They ram it, cram it, jam it down people's throat week after week after week after week and rarely touch on anything else. Not surprisingly, some of the people who propagate it are very wealthy themselves. They become, in fact, very wealthy through the preaching and the teaching of this stuff. How would you like to have a 17,000 square foot mansion? How would you like to drive an automobile that costs $235,000? How 
Now, I'm not going to bring up any names, but some of you can guess who I'm talking about. People that have been become immensely wealthy as a result of teaching this particular doctrine, which in essence is just about the only thing that they do preach and teach. It's very easy to dispel this whole teaching just, just using a little practical understanding and knowledge. Let me ask you something. How many of the apostles became wealthy? Can you name one? That's because there weren't any. Jesus and the apostles lived very simple, plain, ordinary, not lavish lives. Very often they were right on the boundary of being impoverished. Were they there because they just didn't have enough faith in God? To give them what they asked for? See, this is one of the things that's pushed by this doctrine, and that is this. It's okay, you don't have anything. You know why you don't have anything? Because you just don't have enough faith. So what you need to do is just muster up more faith. And as you do that, then God's going to bless you, bless you, bless you. And this is exactly what Bildad's saying here. And Alphaz has said the same thing to Job. But it's, it, this is an awful situation because this teaching has gotten a stranglehold on a lot of people. They believe it. They believe it's biblical, godly teaching. And it isn't. I know people. Well, let me just tell you, my sister Dina. Most of you know she died from early onset Alzheimer's just a few months ago. There was a time when she was very actively involved in the church. There was a time when she witnessed to Lori and I and helped us a lot. She was very strong in her faith. But let me tell you, she was, she was fed this stuff week after week after week after week for years. And she never had anything. So what was the message for her? You may say you have faith, but you don't. Because your faith is not manifest in material things. She left the church. I mean, this is serious, serious business. And let me tell you something. The only reason that, that false teaching like this can become so popular and so propagated throughout the world is because people sitting in the pews do not know Scripture enough to be able to, to identify or make a distinction between good, solid, biblical teaching and preaching and that which is not. The truth is this, is if you look to the end of this story, Job in the end is going to become more prosperous and have a larger family than he had before. 
God is going to bless him. But now let me tell you something. He's not going to bless him because Job has somehow earned it and he deserves it. He does it simply because God chooses to do so. Period. There are people that come very, become very wealthy in the ministry. And it seems to be more and more of them. There was a time when, it, the, you know, more often than not, the opposite was true. I mean, there was a time when, when ministers very often barely made enough to live on, and that was very often done intentionally with the purpose of, you know, how are we going to keep the pastor humble? We're, we're going to underpay him. We don't want him to be tempted by all this other kind of stuff. So how do we keep the temptation away from him? We don't give him the resources to get in the realm where he's even going to be tempted by these things. You're not going to be able to be tempted to, 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 to buy a car that costs $50,000. Why? Because he's never going to have $50,000. There are people, there are ministers in the church today, and I don't believe I am one of them. I don't ever believe that I have been. You, know, you guys have provided very well for Lori and I all of the times that we've been here at Springs Presbyterian Church. Now, I've heard people say, you guys are underpaid, you guys are underpaid, you guys are underpaid. Let me tell you something, I have never felt like I was underpaid. And let me tell you, when my calling was approved by Presbytery, I had to argue for you. Because Presbytery looked upon my salary package and said, they're not paying you enough. And they almost did not approve my calling for that very reason. But my message to them was this, is, you know, I, was in, I was 42 years old at this point, and I said, you know what, I've lived a whole life. I know better than you do what my wife and I and our family need to live on. And we can do this. This is a fledgling little church. They don't have resources. And let me tell you, Lori and I have never had a need for anything we have not been able to take care of, ever. Period. Sometimes I think God has willfully kept a lot of money out of my hands because he understands I won't do well with it. You understand that there are very few people who do. There are very few people, even Christians, who are mature enough to handle a lot of money very well. Because it is a temptation that will carry you to all kinds of places you don't want to go to. As we sang this morning, God has blessed us, every one of us. May we count those blessings continually. Let me tell you, the greatest blessing he ever gives to anyone is the opportunity to know him and to love him, to serve him, and to be part of his household. There's nothing like it. 
There really isn't. There's nothing that comes close. Talk about feeling fulfilled. Talking about having a full life. There's no place like being part of God's family. And if you know that, there's nothing on heaven and earth you would trade for it. It is the greatest thing that we could hope for. It's the greatest thing that we could ever have. And it's the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in it. Believe in it. Lean on it. Hold dearly to it with your life. Let go of the world. It does nothing but hold you back. It is full of all kinds of false promises and pretenses and lies. Listen to God. That is truth. That is, every, that is everything we need to know. Take it to heart. Don't let it pass through one ear and out the other. Let it settle deep. Don't fight it. Go with it. Our clock stopped working. So I have not a clue what time it is. So if I went long one Sunday, I have an excuse. But anyway, our praise team is going to come and lead us in a...